Sing, we need a fresh, come on, the fragrance of heaven. Lift your voice. Pour your spirit. Come on, church. Pour your spirit. If that's you this morning, it's me. Come on. A holy anointing, God, please. The power of your presence. Pour your spirit out. Pour your spirit out. Oh, pour your spirit out. Thank you, Lord. Well, have a seat, everybody. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we get into God's Word. I love how worship sets up the Word of God. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear that, you know, we do need a fresh wind of the Spirit. Sometimes God blows and our windows are shut. There's some times when the wind wants to fall fresh on our faces, but there's something between the wind and us. So I want you to keep that in mind this morning. How do we go ahead and keep the windows open of our hearts so then when the wind blows, we get all of it. We, we get all of him. And may we all leave here after a little while understanding how we can be more mindful of the opportunity of experiencing more wind, more presence of the Holy Spirit in and through our lives. Father, I pray that you would guide this morning. You would have your way this morning. I pray that we'd put all of our stuff away and we would just be here gathering to listen, to learn, but God, to yield, to draw closer to you. May this not be a morning about information, but transformation. Use, God, your word to touch us deeply, every single one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, again, it's good to be with you. It's good to be back. I still work here, right? So last couple Sundays, uh, two of my uh, brothers, two of my uh, friends that are also pastors, Jim Wilson and Barney Caston, were here the last couple Sundays. I asked them to come in and, and help uh, unpack more of the gospel of Mark with us, and they always jump at the opportunity to come because they love you, and this is a church where they really realize and tell me that people want to grow, people want to learn. They're not just wanting just to, to show up. So thank you for your hearts, and I hope that uh, we can keep that heart uh, here th th this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Mark. If you've been here for a while, it kind of opens up to the Mark all by itself, right? Unless it's on a phone, then you've got to push that button. So Mark chapter 12, we're going to continue in this series called the, the Case for Christ. And for 16 chapters, and now we're getting towards the end. For 16 chapters, Mark 1 through 16, Mark is making his case for Christ to a Gentile crowd. Again, about 14 years earlier when Mark, before Mark was written, Matthew wrote his gospel uh, to more of a Jewish crowd, to the capital of Jerusalem and its surrounding uh, Jewish communities. Well, again, Mark says, well, what about the Gentiles? Jesus came for them too. And so he writes this gospel and he makes this case. And for the first uh, 10 chapters 
uh, we have three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. It starts when he is 30, and then for three and a half years, he's about 33 and a half when Mark chapter 11 kicks in. And now after his public ministry, Mark slows everything down in Mark 11, where now it's the Passion Week, just one week uh, and six chapters. He really wants us to go ahead and not miss anything that happened from Sunday to Sunday, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And uh, so I think it's pretty neat how we get to prepare for Christmas, the birth of Jesus, uh, as we reflect on why he came in the first place. So uh, let's go ahead and just kind of dive right on in. Uh, a little bit of context. The last few Sundays, Jesus was asked a few questions. And now you're going to see in Mark 12, 35, Jesus kind of turns the table, and now he's the one asking a question. So a couple Sundays ago, uh, one of the questions was about spiritual authority, where Jesus came in authority. He spoke as of God, and it basically frustrated and confused the scribes, the religious people of his day. And, you know, it's okay for you to come and, and rout the Romans for us, but don't step on our priestly responsibilities. No, you don't come with the authority of God. That's our job. And then when Jesus started coming and turning over tables and confronting the religious leaders, they said, you got to go. So again, first question is, what gives you the right to do what you're doing and to say what you're saying and to claim that you can forgive, but only God can forgive? Who gave you this spiritual authority? Question number one. Second question was civil authority. And uh, Jim Wilson shared on this a couple Sundays ago, well, again, if we're for God, uh, why do we have to pay Caesar's taxes? And so uh, what do you say about that? Then the third question someone asked, actually with a, some sincerity here, how are we going to relate to each other in heaven? That was a couple Sundays ago. Well, how about people who have been married to several people and this and this and that? I mean, what's heaven going to be like? And Jesus addressed that a little bit, but then got right back into the, 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 the days and the now that we only have one shot at. And then last Sunday, uh, one last question was about the, the great mitzvah, Barney, Brother Barney, Rabbi Barney, uh, came and shared from a Jewish unique perspective on the great commandment, you shall love God uh, first, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself the second. So again, all of these questions we unpack, good stuff. But now I want you to see some context here. Now they stopped asking questions. And now Jesus says, I have a question. And now he dives right on in. And context is key to the question that he asks. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the next passage in this long journey uh, through the Gospel of Mark. And then more specifically, through this last week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And by the way, this is still Tuesday. This is a lot of teaching, a lot of temple time on Tuesday. And so again, it's still Tuesday during this week where now Jesus asks this question. Take a look. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, after all these other questions were asked of him, he said, let me ask you scribes a question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
where David himself and the Holy Spirit, prompted by, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Psalms 110, verse 1, by the way, so he's quoting uh, a passage in the Old Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, David said, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus says, hey, David calls this coming Messiah sent from the Lord. So the Lord Yahweh, God Almighty, uh, says to David's Lord, the coming Messiah, you will sit at my right hand. And by the way, that's what Jesus did until I put your enemies under your feet. So this is what Jesus says based on that, that Old Testament messianic prophecy. David calls this coming Messiah Lord. So how is he his son, the, the son of David, coming from the lineage of David? And the great throng heard him gladly. So the crowd heard that, and the scribes heard that, and the crowd thought, that's a good question. So we know that this coming Messiah was going to be coming from the line or lineage of David. So he's going to come after David. And then literally people, especially in the first century, and most often even today, if you come after, you have less authority than the one who came before. So how could he come after David and still be the Lord over David? And so again, the crowd said, that's a good one. And here's what I want you to grasp here. Literally, the scribes didn't know. There were times in the Gospels they did know, but they didn't want to say that they knew because they were trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to catch Jesus. Honestly, they missed the incarnation of Jesus the Christ. And that's kind of where I'm going to spend some time with us this morning. Uh, Jesus is talking about the incarnation. How can this coming Messiah come after and still be Lord over as if he was before David? How can he be before David and after David? The only answer is the incarnation. But the scribes couldn't answer it. See, Jesus was really trying to confront them, as he's done before, that they're still thinking only horizontal and not vertical. They're still just thinking political freedom and not spiritual freedom. And so they said, listen, if you want to be an earthly king, you want to be the king like David was back in his day, 1000 BC, you come and be our king and free us from the current bullies of our day. David freed us from the Philistines. You free us from the Romans. Bring it. We want to be free. And then Jesus says, listen, I didn't come just to go ahead and make your circumstances here a little better. I came to solve your huge problem of being separated from a holy God because of your sin. But they didn't get that. They really wanted just more of an earthly king, and they only had a earthly, horizontal perspective. And anything that was spoken in the Bible about this coming Messiah that had anything other than that, they didn't hear. They didn't see. And you're going to see more about that this morning. So Jesus is trying to make his case. Hey, I am more than a man. I'm not just after David. I came before David. I can come after and still be his Lord. And would you let me be your Lord too? That's where he was going. And they didn't have an answer. A little bit of context here. Who were these scribes? And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say 
the Christ. And by the way, Christ, from the Greek word Christos, it literally means anointed, promised, chosen one, the coming Messiah. A similar name, similar meaning was Mashiach, Messiah, Hebrew, Messiah, Greek, Christos. It's the same word, and the coming one. And so he says, how can this coming one, Christos or Mashiach, whichever it's Hebrew or Greek, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Who were these scribes? It's very important for us, and that's going to be the focus of this morning. These scribes were the Bible scholars. These scribes were the biblical theologians in their day. They were the ones that were the most educated and knew the Bible, what the Bible said, more than anybody else. The crowds, the Jewish communities looked up to these scribes because they had all the degrees. They had all the scrolls. They read and reflected more than anybody else on God's word. Hold that thought. These are the people that should know better than they do. These are the ones that should have known the answer to this incarnation question. So here's the big question for you and I today. How can back then and today, they and maybe we know so much of the Bible, but miss the focus of the Bible? And that's what happens today, and that is what happened back then. Let me give you a few clues as to how they missed Jesus, how he is described in the Old Testament, born in Bethlehem, raised from the line of David, I mean, I'm going to be able to say what I say and do what I do and accomplish what only I can accomplish. He fulfilled all these prophecies, and yet these scribes killed him, and they did not worship him. How do you miss Jesus when you know the scriptures so well back then and today? Let me give you a few clues on this. Take a look at, let me go back uh, before this Passion Week, and we looked at this more specifically uh, some weeks ago, but I want you to remember the attitude that these scribes had. They already closed their heart off, and they already refused to hear anything that Jesus had to say that, that would lessen the power that they had over the Jewish community, and that's what they wanted. Mark chapter 8, 31, and he began to teach his disciples. By the way, guys, the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite term for himself from Daniel chapter 7, capital S, the Son of God, God the Son coming in power to, to, to bring peace. Uh, and he began to teach them that, that he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by who? Don't miss this, the elders, the chief priests, and these guys, these guys that he was talking about at the temple on a Tuesday. And then these guys are going to have Jesus killed, and after three days, Jesus will rise again. And then that's Mark chapter 8. And then he says the same thing in Mark 9, and then also in Mark chapter 10. Let me skip over to Mark chapter 10. And he's still telling the disciples, and they're just about to enter Jerusalem. He says, guys, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, like I said before, will be delivered over to who? The chief priests and... These guys, the, the, the scriptural scholars, and they will condemn me to death and deliver me over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, and they will mock me, spit on me, flog me, and kill me. And after three days, he will rise. So one of the 
issues, realities that I don't want us to miss is they already had this attitude against Jesus, and that prevented them from hearing Jesus. So there's something else I want us to know just in terms of contextual help is over in John chapter 7. It was uh, not a surprise that this coming Christ would be from the lineage of King David. It's Bible. And not only the scribes knew that, which they did, but all of the Jewish communities knew that as well. So let's look back to John chapter 7, because this is why Jesus told everybody, how can this coming Christ, of which who I'm claiming to be, how can I be coming from David, but David calls me his Lord, even though I came after? Uh, John chapter 7, take a look. Uh, verse, verse 40, and this, this is way before the Passion Week, but early on in Jesus' ministry, people are trying to figure out who is this Jesus, and he can't be the Messiah because we know that the, that the Messiah, the, the Christ, was, was from Bethlehem. But this guy is from Galilee. Bethlehem is down south. Galilee is up north. Galilee was where Nazareth was, where Jesus was raised. So they're trying to put all this together. And notice what it says here. When they heard these words from this Jesus, some of the people said, this could be the guy. This is the capital P, prophet, the one that was promised. Others said, yes, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach. But some said, it can't be. Is the Christ to come from Galilee? We know what the scriptures say. The Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? That was huge. They knew that. That's why Jesus asked him about that. But comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was from. So there was a division among the people over who this Jesus was. We look back and say, well, we know the answer. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. They're still trying to figure all this out. So, uh, so let's get back to this, uh, this passage then. And uh, again, one of the things I want to, 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 to focus in on is uh, how they truly had every opportunity to see how Jesus fulfilled all that they knew in the Old Testament and all that Jesus was doing, saying, and accomplishing right in front of them. And yet... They were the ones that still said, we have to reject you. Uh, we have to make sure you don't get out of here alive. There's one thing that I want to share that uh, I'm just going to throw it out, and then we're going to keep, keep moving on. And one of the things that the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests all had an issue with was the difference between king and priest. I didn't share this in the first service, but I'm going to go ahead and just give a couple minutes here, and then I'm going to go ahead and get back into this. But back in the Old Testament, you had kings and priests, and they had different responsibilities. The kings were to keep them free. They were to fight their enemies, and they were to end earthly oppression. The priests were the ones that spoke with authority of God, and they were the ones that represented God. Matter of fact, back in the old days, kings got in trouble when they took on some priestly responsibilities. Here's what they missed. Jesus was going to be coming as king and priest. 
not king or priest. So the priest had no problem, the scribes of his day had no problem with Jesus coming to be king. Hey, beat up our, our, our oppressors. Let's set up our own political uh, you know, power. That's great. But you just leave the religious stuff to us. And so now when Jesus is coming and basically says, listen, I've come to set people free, but I'm not going to set up an earthly kingdom. I'm coming after the separation between God and sinful people, and that's the heavenly kingdom I'm going to do. And uh, when he was pushing on their religious authority, that's what got Jesus killed. So, so let, let me give you a few examples of what the scribes read and reflected on and understood, but also what they chose to ignore. So one of their favorite Old Testament prophecies was over in Jeremiah chapter 23, 5, and 6. So Jeremiah, Old Testament uh, prophet who spoke of the coming Messiah, they loved most of this passage. Remember, the scribes only saw the coming of an earthly revolutionary. They were only hearing horizontal truth. You're going to come and you're going to make our horizontal lives freer and better. Leave the vertical to us. Don't you dare talk about forgiveness of sins and, and authority from God because that's our job. And so when Jesus comes in and steps on those toes, the religious leaders were the ones that says, yeah, gotta go. This is one of their favorite passages. Look at Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch from King David, from his line, from his, uh, again, uh, generations, a righteous branch is going to go ahead and grow. And he, and this new king, he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Come on, bring it, right? In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. That's where they stop. It's amazing. They had selective hearing just as we are at times are, are tempted to have the same selective learning. They missed the last part. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh Sidkenu is the name of God that's going to be coming as Messiah. So again, Jesus was way more than an earthly, horizontal, uh, you know, freer. Uh, he came as king and Lord. And David prophesied about that, and that's what they just couldn't get their arms around. So summary they wanted Jesus to be a horizontal conquering king. Two things that they just couldn't see. That Jesus would be first a suffering servant, and that is so loud in the scriptures. And then also he would be coming as God the Son. The Son of Man. And they literally couldn't see it. Because they didn't want to. Because it would, still, it would mess up their, their paradigm their power, and they're unwilling to let that go. Let me give you another passage that they could not have reflected on much, and if they did, they would have answered Jesus' question in Mark chapter 12. Actually, this is a passage I might unpack with us at our church here when we get closer to Christmas. Isaiah uh, chapter 9, 6, and 7. 
so again, when you read this passage, it seems more clear to us that Jesus is more than a horizontal helper, an earthly king. He came as God with us, Emmanuel, to come and bridge the gap between our holy God and us, right? Take a look at Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7. For to us, this is 700 years before Jesus, by the way. For to us, a child will be born. A child is born. To us, a son will be given, is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. They like that part, earthly king stuff. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. There it is. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And there it is. On the throne of David, lineage of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord hosts will do this. All that to say is this. They only had earthly eyes to wait for an earthly king to make their earthly life more comfortable. But when Jesus decided, I'm more vertical than horizontal, they said, you're not our guy. How can they miss things like we just read? And they knew it. They taught it. They memorized it. They missed it. So let me give you just a summary of two things that they missed. And then we're going to spend most of the morning on how they and we can miss what God is trying to say. What did they miss? Take a look with me on your outline. Let me just give them to you. We've already hinted at this. What they miss from the first few verses that we've already looked at. Number one, that Jesus is more than a David-like deliverer. That's all they wanted. That's what they were waiting for. Please be another David. He came in and, and uh, defeated Goliath from Goth, and he, he whooped up on the Philistines, and he helped us establish uh, political power in their day. We want the same. And so Jesus was going to be more than a David-like deliverer, um, but they didn't see it. Number two is uh, the apparent contradiction. How can one be born after David but still be Lord over David? This apparent contradiction points to his incarnation, and they had the scriptures. Genesis 1 uh, Elohim, which is a plural description of God. Let us make mankind in our image. It just shouts the Trinity. And then we learn from the scripture that Jesus was there in the beginning. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He did not begin in Bethlehem. And Jesus was trying to confront the scribes as to their short-sightedness uh, that, that they had. But they wouldn't have anything of it. So those were the two things that they missed. Um, well, so how do we go ahead and uh, how do we go ahead and not miss what God wants to say to us? And so let's keep going here. So again, those are the first few. Let me give you a few more clues from Mark chapter 12, the last few verses here, uh, as to how they could miss the message from God to them so much. Well, I think their attitude was huge. I already shared with you Mark 8 and Mark 10, where even before Jesus showed up, they already said, you're not the guy because you're not basically staying in your lane. Uh, you're starting to mess with the priestly stuff, and that's our job. 
And, uh, but now, take a look at Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. So right after he asked this question, and they literally didn't answer, I really think that they couldn't grasp the reality of the incarnation. And uh, now this is what Jesus says. Look at verse 38. And in his teaching, Jesus said, okay, I just asked you a question why these guys uh, can't answer what I just asked them. But then he says, beware of these guys. And they're right there, by the way. Beware of the scribes. My guess is Jesus is the only one in that entire generation that ever confronted these religious types. Everybody else bowed to them. Everybody else respected them, listened to them. They must be right because they're much more educated than I. Jesus said, beware of these guys who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. These are the guys that wore long white robes, and when they went over to UTC or one Paseo or whatever marketplace they did, they wanted to look different. So everyone would stop and say, oh, welcome, Rabbi. They loved that. They loved to uh, impress other people and, and, uh, and have privileges that other people didn't have. They like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And they, they like to have the best seats in the synagogues. And they like the places of honor at their feasts and festivals. They wanted the position that represented a power that they were unwilling to allow Jesus to have. Even more so, look at verse 40. They also, by the way, they devour widows' houses. pretty sure when Jesus said that, he had an angry look, and he was looking right at them. You guys are supposed to represent the Lord. You guys had priestly responsibilities, and the most vulnerable of your generation would come to you for help, and you abused them. You took from them. You, you tried to get them to sign over their houses to you. And Jesus says, What you have done to them, I'm trying to go ahead and not only confront, but let them see uh, more of God's heart that they were unable to see in you. Boy, the scribes didn't like that at all. You devoured the widow's houses, and then, and for a pretense, you make long prayers. What does it mean for pretense? Their long prayers wasn't talking to God. Again, it's just trying to impress people. They used all their five and six syllable words, and they just shared prayers that no one really understood, but they were really impressed by, right? And, uh, and then Jesus says, they will receive the greater condemnation. As you are being impressed by them, God's not so impressed with them. And, uh, and they're going to be judged for how they misrepresented the God that they were claiming to go ahead and, uh, and have priestly responsibilities for. So obviously, the scribes missed it. Obviously, Jesus was confronting. But again, I don't want you to miss this. When Jesus asked them, think beyond the horizontal Go for the vertical that I'm not just after David. I came before David. That's why I'm Lord over him. They literally had no category. It was staring them in the face. They read it, reflected it, had scrolls right there, and they missed it. So here's my question. Here's most of what I want to talk about now. It's easy, Grace Point Church, to look at how other people missed opportunities that they had. 
it's a little bit more difficult for us to recognize the opportunities we have. That God says, now it's your turn. Uh, don't miss it. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. Take a look with me on your outline, and uh, I would encourage you to write a few things down. Let me give you four uh, ways you can misuse the Bible, and that would cause you to miss out on the maturing that God wants for you as you read the Bible. They obviously had the same Bible. They had the same opportunities. And the people that should have got Jesus the most missed him the most. Let's go. Let's take a look at a couple of things here. Why they, and hear me, and we can miss it uh, from the last few verses here. When the Bible becomes, and here's the first one, a pair of binoculars rather than a mirror. Now hear me, if you've been around our church, you've, you, you've heard me use this metaphor before. And, uh, and that's a good thing if you are, you know, hearing it again. If you're brand new, you might, you know, say, what's this about? The bottom line is this. We miss the primary purpose for the Bible in our lives when we read it and we pick up binoculars and we look around at what other, who else really needs to hear what we just read. And, you know, there are opportunities, uh, maybe even responsibilities, that when we read something, we can pray for other people. But hear me. Grace Point Church, the primary role of Scripture is to help your maturity. And then as you mature, God will prompt you to go ahead and reach out and bless and encourage and even offer truth to others. But the primary role is not binoculars. Put them away. Because when you're only looking at what other people need and what other people need to read, and, oh, I need to go ahead and send this link to them, you're missing out on what God wants to say to you. Let me give you a couple uh, verses along the way uh, on this one. Uh, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 16. And by the way, I just got to share with you a little bit of pastor uh, exposure here. This is hard for me. I mean, honestly, part of my job at Grace Point Church is to teach you. So it has been difficult for me now for over 30 years to read the Bible for Bob because I'm quickly wanting to go ahead and take notes because Sunday's coming and sermon stuff and class stuff. And so again, but when I read to speak more than read to grow, I miss out on an opportunity to, to, to mature. And uh, I don't think I'm all that alone here. It's much easier to go ahead and read the Bible for other people because we know that they have a lot of growing to do. And they do. But so do you. And so do I. So the first thing we do, oh, God, no binocular, only mirror. Let me see more of me and what you want me to see and what you want me to do. All right, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Notice what Older Pastor Paul talks to younger Pastor Timothy, and it's the same counsel we could appreciate today. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Timothy, you have been so blessed. You grew up with the scriptures. Your grandmother, uh, 
helped you understand biblical truth from the early days, if you know his story, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you, and here's some purposes for the scriptures. First, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The primary initial purpose of the scriptures is help you understand and respond to the gospel. So Timothy, uh, you, through the scriptures, have become wise for salvation, wise to be adopted in, to be a new creation, to be forgiven, to be part of God's family, to become literally brought into the family that you were made to be part of. But here's the deal. A lot of people think, well, then I, that's, that's all Scripture is for. That's not true. And then Timothy, listen, all Scripture is breathed out by God, inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The idea there is the first part is to become wise for salvation. But listen, the Bible then for the rest of our days is to help us train for righteous living. And let God speak to you and I as we open up the Bible, put away the binoculars, focus on the mirror. God, what are the actions and attitudes you want to do business with me about? And I, I tell you, some of you, you have such a broken heart for other people. You want them to grow. The best way to help them grow, you know the answer, is for you to grow. For you to have this aroma of Christ based on your application of the truth that God's revealing to you. And then let God work on them. And by the way, over the years, I've learned uh, I'm a bad Holy Spirit. I don't, you know, when I started playing the Holy Spirit for my wife and for kids, and I started, God said, okay, good luck with that, you know. That's not good. Oh, no, no, i got to stay in my lane. I need to go ahead and live out my Christian journey and then let God do the rest. All right. Let me give you another one related to this mirror thing. I mean, the metaphor wasn't uh, made up by me. Uh, James uses it in James chapter 1. Take a look at this passage, something I want you to not miss. It literally says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a person, man, woman, who looks intently at his natural face, where? In a mirror. But he looks at himself and doesn't do anything about it and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Here's the deal. It's not enough to let the Bible be used as a mirror, but you've got to do something about what God reveals to you. If you look at a mirror and you have lettuce in your teeth or stain on your shirt, don't just walk away because you're going to forget it and it doesn't do you any good, right? So uh, there are times... Even like on Sunday mornings, sometimes I hear, oh, Bob, that was a great message. I feel like God was speaking directly to me. Another way to say that, oh, I lifted up the mirror and I saw God more clearly. I saw what I need to do to walk more closely with God more clearly. That's wonderful. That doesn't mean you're going to do anything about it, right? Because then kids and car keys and bills and politics and, and, and you still have lettuce in your teeth. Although you saw it, I got to do something about that. And uh, so I would encourage us at Grace Point Church, it's not enough to use the Bible as a mirror. we got to go ahead and do something about what God reveals. So that's the, that's the first one. Let me give you another one. Uh, when the Bible becomes not just a pair of binoculars rather than a mirror, number two, a book of suggestions. What do I mean by that?
when the Bible becomes a book where we pick and choose to take certain passages seriously. It's not enough to look at a mirror and then decide, I like that passage, but I don't like this one. Don't let the Bible become a book of suggestions for you where you pick and choose which revelations from God you want to take more seriously. That's what the scribes did. I mean, they took some passages as from God, and they missed entire passages because it didn't fit their paradigm. They weren't willing to give up the power, the control, the, the prestige of, of being the priest. They really weren't willing to do what John the Baptist said and did. He must increase. I must decrease. <laughs> the scribe said, yeah, no, we're not increasing. You're the one that's going to go ahead and decrease. And so, again, a book of suggestions. Another way to say that is, where do you and I pick and choose, again, to take some parts of the Bible more seriously than others? A uh, little bit of a historic quiz. Who's that guy? Some of you guys know this. Some of you guys have actually seen this. This is Thomas Jefferson. He's the third president of the United States of America. And in, in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., um, I Googled this, but some of you might have seen this. This is one of several Thomas Jefferson Bibles that literally is on display. So again, this is, uh, this is fact, okay? And here's what he did. He, like we, have favorite passages in the Bible. You know what he did literally? He took out a knife and he cut out passages that he would rather not read or reflect on. And so he basically cut out the passages, what he didn't want to even consider living in light of, and he only kept his favorites. Now you look at that, you think, well, that's not good. You and I are tempted to do the same thing. You and I are tempted, you know what, God, I like this. You can help me in this area, but who I date, what I do with my money, how honest I should be Monday through Friday, what I should look at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, God, I think I'm going to go ahead and make that decision, those decisions myself. So again, if you pick up binoculars and you put away the mirror, you're misusing the Bible and it's not maturing you the way God wants to use it. But also, if you're picking and choosing, the very passages and challenges you wish wasn't there, but it is there, and you're going to have to trust God, uh, that is when God says, please let me mature you. So again, uh, when you turn the Bible into a book of suggestions and not a complete book to be taken seriously. Let me say something, too. Again, this might answer maybe a question for some of you. Why is it, Bob, that I pray and I just don't hear? Why is it that I open the Bible and I just don't hear from God? It's just, it seems like a dead book. Let me tell you something. Someone told me this a long time ago, and it's still true. God never accepts the role of cosmic consultant when you want to hire him to be that. Here's God. I want to bring you into my life, and I'm going to read the Bible, and you get to reveal yourself to me. Then I get to consider 
whether I'm going to go ahead and do it or not. Hear me. God says, no, I'm not going to be hired. I'm not going to be brought into your life as this uh, optional uh, truth giver. I only am God. And if you're not willing, even before you open up the book, to say, yes, God, then I'm not going to go ahead and play the game of cosmic consultants. So if you are picking and choosing what passage takes seriously and what passage not to, now you know why things have been so silent from above. He will not enable that. And boy, there have been times in my life where I just didn't want to take God's word as seriously. And uh, God says, I'm going to wait for you to go ahead and, uh, and, and, and straighten that out. Um, some of you know my story. I love my dad. My dad is 91. I speak to him regularly. Uh, if it wasn't for my wife and the Holy Spirit, probably in that order, and uh, I wouldn't have a relationship with my father now. When my dad divorced my mom, when she started showing signs of early dementia, uh, I told my dad, Dad, if you divorce her, you will never see your grandkids again. I was at a Wendy's, and I was angry. And, uh, and he divorced her, and we had to take care of my mom in her last days. And uh, I had bitterness in my heart. I had resentment. I had to help my mom uh, do things that her husband ought to have done. I didn't want to forgive my dad. I didn't want to love my dad. I didn't want to honor my dad. And my wife said, you just need to pray about that one. In a sense, God, I'll take you seriously in all these passages. But this, no, love forgive and trust that was tough and i tell you when i chose god the only opportunity i have to obey you is from the power of your holy spirit to do it in me and through me and i don't want to think about my dad i don't want to see him ever again but i choose to forgive that was the beginning of this installment that, that started my life. And I, the reason why I share that, I didn't share that with the previous service. There might be someone in here, God, I will, I will obey you wholeheartedly over here to make up for what I'm unwilling to do right here. That is why you're stuck. That is why I was stuck for a period of time. Let me get back to this. Let me give you a little bit of Matthew chapter 23. See, this is what the scribes were doing. The scribes were seeing the Bible as a book of suggestions where they were picking and choosing what passages to take more seriously. And, uh, and, so, and Jesus calls them out on it. So Matthew 23 is the parallel passage to Mark chapter 12. Matthew 23 is the same Passion Week. It's the same Tuesday. And it's the same confrontation that Jesus is having with these scribes. But Matthew gives a little bit more detail. Thank you, Matthew. And so let me read for you what Matthew has to say that Mark <coughs> chose to leave out. <coughs> so Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you bunch of hypocrites. You tithe your kitchen spices, literally, you know. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, 
but you have neglected the weightier matters of law, what God also said, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So what's going on here? They chose to tithe even so much so that it draw more attention to themselves. So before they would take out their little Tupperware of cinnamon, they wouldn't use all of the cinnamon or all the pasta, whatever. They would take out a tenth, a tithe, from the top of all of their food, and they would give that to the temple, and they would eat the rest. They just kind of like tithing on steroids, right? So they were so disciplined and doing all that, yet they were ignoring the weightier matters. Guys, you were doing something. You're taking this seriously, but in other ad, uh, matters, you are totally ignoring. You're tithing cinnamon, and you're ripping off widows. And notice this is what he's saying here. You should be known way more than whether or not you're tithing your dill and your mint. You should be known for justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And these you ought to have done. You should tithe. Matter of fact, tithing is an exercise. It's a discipline to keep God first in our life. Every time you say yes to tithing, the only reason you're saying yes to that because you've already said yes to God. I think I even have a verse over this. Deuteronomy 14.23, the purpose of tithing, God doesn't need your money, but you need to have this habit of, of putting God first to, to strengthen your faith. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your life. But what these guys were doing, they were doing that, but not taking a serious look at these other passages. And notice how they're called this. I'm, I can't go back. So Matthew 23, he calls them blind guides. You remember that? Here's the problem. They were blind. You know why? Because they were not maturing, because they were misusing the Bible, because they were picking and choosing which passages to take more seriously. Do you get that? So don't stop doing what you know the Bible is saying over here, but start doing what God says to do over here. Bob, you need to forgive your dad. And you don't need to just forgive him. You need to pray for him. You need to love him. You need to include him in your life. You need to have him in your home. One of my best friends today is my dad. I call him regularly. And uh, I'm walking with him today. And it's not a duty. It really is a delight. And, uh, and it would not have happened if I would have just said, God, I will take you seriously here. But I won't. He doesn't deserve it over there. God had to do some work on my life related to what grace needs to look like. All right, let's go ahead and keep moving on. Let me give you another verse related to this whole picking and choosing. So what does God want? I love this one. Look at Micah chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. So some of these people were doing some disciplines well, but they're missing out on the heart of all of the disciplines. Should we offer God thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Is that what God wants us to do? I mean, should we sacrifice our firstborn? Of course not. To pay for our sins? No, oh people. The Lord has told you what is good. This is of the heart of God. And, and this is what he requires of you to do what is right when God says to do it, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let me give you another one. 
Number three, so when the Bible is a pair of binoculars instead of a mirror, when the Bible is a place where you pick and choose what to obey and what to not to, you're not maturing the way God wants you to. Number three, a source of speculation. Boy, this is a good one. This was way back in Jesus' day, and it's still alive in today. So can we all agree some passages in the Bible are more clear than the others? Here's the deal. If it's not absolutely clear in the Bible, it's not as important than what is absolutely clear in the Bible. And there's too many people in Jesus' day and too many people today that waste most of their time trying to figure out the mysteries of the Bible that God says, I'm going to give you the generalities and you need to trust me for what I am not giving clarity on. There's a lot of stuff about eschatology. There's a lot of stuff about prophecy that God says. There's a lot of stuff about heaven that I'm giving you enough to look forward to, but I'm not going to want you to go ahead and spend your life trying to figure out what I'm obviously not giving you all information about. So again, when it becomes a source of speculation. Back in the New Testament days, they had the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament. One of the problems of the Old Testament, it, it, it's, it's, it's Hebrew. And there's so much generality to it. It's, it's a broad language. And there's a lot of examples that we wish God would be more specific, and he just chose not to be. Uh, and you can demand it. You can pout about it. You can go ahead and waste your time trying to fill in the unfillable. And God says, that's not going to help you mature. One example is the begats. There's a lot of lists, a lot of genealogies in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's a one-generation jump. Sometimes it's a multiple-generation jump. And some of those begat who, begat who, <coughs> are confusing. And uh, take a look at what uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 uh, talks about in verse 3 and 4. So this is, again, Paul talking to the younger Timothy. and literally says, I'm going west to Macedonia. You stay pastoring in Ephesus, but stay on mission. And don't encourage people to get lost in speculation. Notice what he says. Hey, as, as I urge you when I'm going west to Macedonia, you stay in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. Stay on the truth. Nor to devote yourself to myths, and here it is, endless genealogies. What is an endless genealogy? There's still questions that we're not going to have absolutely clarity over and that only promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So some of you Bible scholars, you're spending way too much time trying to answer the unanswerable, trying to find all the detail of which God obviously did not provide. And so we miss the opportunity to mature when we ignore the clear and we try to force the unclear to go ahead and make a little bit more sense. And so, again, the Bible should not be just a source for endless speculation. Something I did share with the first, verse, first service, I'm, it's not on your outline. I would encourage you, if you haven't taken our Discipleship Essentials class, it really does help you with the habits so that you can continue to go into training after you've been saved by Jesus, okay? And instead of speculation, what we encourage you is put on specs, S-P-E-C-S. So instead of binoculars, put up a mirror to see what you need to do, what your next step is. Take all the Bible seriously, don't, not just the ones you like, and stay away from speculation. 
you might want to write this down if this is new for you, S-P-E-C-S. When I read the Bible, this is what I do. I look for, kind of put on these specs, these glasses, and I see through this acronym. S means, is there something new that uh, I have not been aware of? That's clear. Well, that's new. I kind of write those down. P, is there a promise to claim? E, is there an example for me to follow or is there an example for me to avoid? C, is there a command for me to obey? S, is there a sin for me to confess? So something new, promise to claim, example to follow or not follow, command to obey, sin to confess. That keeps my attention on me first and that helps me mature and uh, I don't spend a lot of time on the stuff that God obviously says I chose not to be as clear about. You're going to have to trust me with. And uh, last couple of verses here. I mean, this is all the way through the New Testament. I'm not going to spend much time. We're going to get to the last one here. But notice this. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversy. What is an ignorant controversy? It's a controversy where people are sharing their ignorance. <laughs> yeah, we just don't know the answers to these things. But you can go ahead and pontificate and argue and speculate. Why are you doing that? Stay on the clear. Stay focused on what I have absolutely told you related to your training in righteousness. And uh, you know they just breed nothing but quarrels. And then Titus 3.9, avoid foolish controversy. Now, I'm not going to spend any more time on this one, but listen to me. There are times for needed controversy. And when someone starts messing with Jesus, messing with the gospel, messing with what is absolutely clear in Scripture, that is a controversy we can go ahead and, and address. But make sure it's not foolish controversy. And I think so many times, I'll just say it, foolish controversy is from those who would rather talk about that than talk about what God is wanting to do in or through their life. And so stay on mission. Stay listening versus, again, uh, speculating. All right, let me give you one last one, then we'll call it a morning. A prompting of pride. You know you are misusing the Bible, and it's not maturing you the way God intended, is after you read it, after a Sunday morning, after a small group time, you are more prideful than humble. And the way that works, the middle letter of pride is the same middle letter of sin. What is it? It's an I. And if you read the scriptures, and if I read the scriptures, and I walk away thinking, I am so much better than they, I'm so much smarter than they. You have just missed an opportunity to mature. So again, listen to me. Humility is not insecurity, but it's dependency on God. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, I'm going to give it to you in a minute, that knowledge without repentance, without humility, it just puffs you up. And, uh, and, and it makes you think you're more mature than you are. Take a look at one passage, and I don't have time to work through the context here. They had their issues. We have our issues. One of their primary issues was meat, tri-tip, good stuff, offered to a dead idol that doesn't eat much, and then after it's presented on a plate before this idol that doesn't eat much, and then what are you going to do with this meat? 
And so these cultic groups would take that and they would go ahead and sell it on the marketplace. Well, the Christians would come and say, hey, that is good tri-tip. You know, I don't care about what has been offered to you. There's no, there's, no, there's no reality there, but that's good barbecue. And so some people would go to the marketplace and they would go ahead and get these meats at half price because they were already offered to this dead idol. But some Christians said, no, you cannot do that because he was offered uh, in basically uh, inappropriate ways. Well, then they're arguing about this, splitting over this. Look at, look at what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, 2, 3. So again, it's not about the, 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 the issue. It's what Paul addresses that I want you to pay attention to. Now, regarding your question about, it could have been anything, food that has been offered to idols. Yes, we know that we all have knowledge. He says, yes, everybody has an opinion about this issue. And here's what he says. But while knowledge makes us feel important, watch out for that. If that is what's fueling you after your time in the Word of God, it's not maturing you the way God wants it to. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers <laughs> doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes, is delighted in, is the one who actually is maturing. I told someone before this service, after the, second, after the first one, it's interesting, the irony is those that had most access to these scrolls of the Bible were the less mature ones than the others that just had glimpses of the scrolls. But it's not what you read, it's how you respond to the Spirit of God back then and today. Well, let me give you a test. Again, some of you, this won't work for you, but some of you, it will. Uh, this is the last week, and I'm done after this, I promise. Uh, this is the last week of our small group season. We're going to take a break. This is 12 weeks. This is week 12 this, this week, and most of our groups are going to go ahead and party. I think me and the young adults, we're going to go bowling or something like that. But, uh, so, but we're not doing the sermon discussion stuff. We're taking a break through the holidays. We'll start back in January. So we're celebrating. This is small group, week 12, this coming week question for you that have been in one of our small groups. Have you ever had an opportunity to measure your maturity in a certain way? I love our small groups because we have different backgrounds, different maturity levels, and honestly, small groups help us mature by helping us get along with people not like us. It really is true, and you can think you're a lot more mature when you're all by yourself, but it's interesting in relationships stuff gets exposed, and it happens in small groups. So I'm not panicked at all when someone needs to work something out. That means, oh, great, you get to mature through this thing, and that's, that's always a good thing. But let me tell you a scenario that happens often in small groups, and I'm going to wonder how you responded. So you're sitting in a small group, and someone's sharing, and someone gets a name wrong. Someone thinks Abraham is married to Rebecca and not Sarah, and they're telling a story. Or someone gives you kind of a verse that God has helped them, but they give the wrong address. Here's my question for you. What's the first thing that comes up from your heart? Are you quick to correct? Are you so excited in love that they're learning, that they're sharing, that they're growing? Honestly, there have been times when I've heard other pastors abuse a passage or other person misquote this, 
And then, honestly, there's a little bit of smugness that grows up in me. <laughs> they don't know as much as I do. Yeah, they, they got the wrong address. They got the wrong person. Listen to me. In those moments, that is not a reflection of their maturity as it is mine. And so I just want you to know that when other people are growing, we need to love them, not lecture them. We need to go ahead and, 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 and embrace their, their, their path and not correct all the, the smaller details. And uh, m- let me give you this last verse, 1 Corinthians 13, verse, verse, verse 2. It's a long passage about love, but here it is. If I, you know, know all prophecies and all that, but then understand all mysteries, which you don't. That's those endless genealogies. That's the eschatologies. That's all these kind of things. If you understand all of them, or, and, or if you have all knowledge, but you have not love, you're, you're nothing. Let me tell you the final exam that's waiting for you and me. It's about salvation, and it's about stewardship. Let me tell you something. When you breathe your last, there will be a final audit on your life. The first question will be salvation. Are you trying to get into heaven on your own, based on your resume, or the one who lived perfectly, and died sacrificially, and rose from the dead, and that would be Jesus. The first question is about salvation. The second question is about stewardship. Let me tell you about this stewardship final audit. Hear me. It will not be a written exam. It will not be how much Bible knowledge you know and you're taken into heaven. Some of you, you wish it was a written exam. You would nail it. Let me tell you, it's not going to be a written exam. It's going to be a worship exam. What do I mean by that? Worship is not singing. Worship is living a surrendered life. And Jesus Christ says, now I saved you, and you're in. But did you live a surrendered life? Was it more about them or more about you? This is an opportunity right now. God, I want to live a surrendered life. First, you need to surrender, and then you need to choose to live a surrendered life. And listen to me. The same problems back then are the same problems today, and the same solutions back then that we talked about are the same solutions right now. Let God's word speak, even when it is uncomfortable, even when you need to forgive. You might not need to trust. You should not trust all those you forgive. But you do need to forgive. You do need to love. And especially those around our church and those around your life that you have the most problems with. The question not is how immature they are. The question is how loving can you be? You bow your heads, let's pray. Father, thank you for this gospel of Mark. Thank you for these truths that are opportunities for us now to see how we can live out some of these truths this coming week. Father, thank you for the gifts and opportunities to grow from your word and from from your people. I pray that Grace Point Church would be a church that takes you seriously. May we be known by our love more than what we know. In Jesus' name, amen. This is an opportunity right here, right now, to respond to God. What does that mean? Let these 